Good evening. I'm Matthew Bannister, and welcome to this National Theatre platform to discuss Ugly Lies the Bone. We were just uh, talking amongst ourselves before we came on and, and wondering how many people here will have seen the show already and how many are going to see it in future. So I wonder if you might raise your hands if you've seen the show already. So it's about kind of 50-50, so you'll have to bear with us if we explain some things, and we'll try not to give away too much if you're going to see the show uh, later. I'm delighted to be joined by the author of the play, Lindsay Ferentino, and by Indu Rubasingham, who directed it. Um, and Indu, I wanted you to start, just to put this in context, to give us some idea of why you wanted to direct this play. Yeah, yeah, it's very, uh, it's very easy. We, I didn't know Lindsay, uh, and I was given this script, and, uh, uh, and I was kind of quite blown away, because you don't often... Oh, God, I really hope I'm not giving a spoiler. Uh, a, a spoiler. But, you know, to see a play that, uh, A, takes you to, to different, different landscapes. I mean, literally, the virtual reality world, real world. But also, the real world is set uh, in Florida uh, during the end of, uh, end of NASA, the rocket launch, the last rocket launch. So you're, you're literally going out of space. You're in... You know, you're in the domestic world and you're in this virtual reality world. And, but dealing with a very human story, an incredibly human story, but which is also funny. Mm. And, and I think I was just shocked and surprised. And you kind of go, oh, my God, I want to see this on the stage. And we should say that this is about a female veteran yeah. who comes back from Afghanistan having been blown up by an improvised explosive device. And it's about her, re her rehabilitation um, her journey uh, back at home in America. And uh, Lindsay, what, what drew you to that story? Uh, well, I'm from the, like you said, the town in Florida where the play is set, well, the town right next door. Um, and this was a town that cropped up to support NASA and the space shuttle industry. It was this town that was always sort of prided itself on being very forward thinking. And like they said in the play, I grew up under this banner that sort of said, Wel welcome to where dreams are launched. And uh, I went away to college the same time that the space shuttle program shut down and kept coming home to a town that was just sort of changing physically and economically. And uh, my best friend became a psychologist for veterans in that area. And we were just talking a lot about this parallel we were noticing between the town looking to start over and veterans coming back to that town looking to do the same thing. Because the effect of the space shuttle program closing down was really devastating for the area, wasn't it? Because a yeah. lot of employment depended on it. Yeah, it went from being a pretty prosperous town with good employment rates to being the number one rate of foreclosures on homes in the entire country. So there were thousands of layoffs in the town and that sort of rippled out statewide. And I think there's 8,000 jobs lost. And then for each job lost in the town, it's sort of, there's two lost in the state for that one job. So it just sort of had this ripple out effect on, and it also happened in 2011, which was sort of the, end of, you know, we're feeling the fallout effects from the 2008 financial crisis, and uh, yeah, it was just so sort of this breaking are, point. And yeah. your characters are suffering from this problem, aren't they? These yeah. are people who've been thrown out of work as yeah, a result of Yeah, and people it, who own their own home but can't sell it because the houses aren't worth anything anymore, so, and anyone who could sort of get out of the area and leave did, and then the people that stayed are the people that sort of had to stay. And what about this idea of the female veteran. I mean, first of all, to me, it was, it was an extraordinary thing to realize that there were female veterans who'd been that involved in combat, because yeah. I, I thought there was an announcement in 2015 that said that women, for the first time in the US forces, were yeah. going to be allowed into combat. But your character is somebody who's been in Afghanistan who's terribly injured as a result of that. Just give us the context for that, the background to yeah. women in, in, the, in the military in, in America. 
Well, it was sort of problematic when they announced that in 2015 because women, especially in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, have been fighting on the front lines, just not being recognized as combat soldiers. Uh, so there is this, especially with this war, I mean, women's involvement in the military has always come about because of uh, need. Um, and then there was just such a great need for the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so women were getting closer to the front lines because it's an unpredictable war. There isn't sort of a war zone. So if you're if you are over there, you are in combat in a sense. Uh, so so women needed to be finally recognized for the fact that they'd been doing that ever since, like in, for all the wars post 9/11. Uh, so and they were dying and being seriously injured. Being seriously injured, but not being called combat soldiers, even though they were seeing combat on a daily basis. So. There is a huge generation of female soldiers right now coming back from these wars that are injured just like the men who have fought alongside the men who have been in charge of groups of men um, but are only now just being allowed to be called combat soldiers. So it's, I spoke with a lot of veterans. I know a number of female veterans um, who just sort of had said that they felt like they never see their story told and I felt like a responsibility to, to do that. And are there issues faced by female veterans that are not faced by male veterans, especially female veterans who are suffering the kind of disfigurement, the kind of um, injuries that your, your heroine uh, yeah. suffers? Well, the, the one narrative I think that you do hear about female veterans is uh, the MSA, military sexual assault or military sexual trauma. Um, that is sort of the only narrative, which is a huge problem in the military when you're one woman among groups of men, that there's, there's this, these high rates of um, military sexual traumas, but that's not what the play is about. Then there's also lots of women who just go and have to fight and keep up with the men. And, uh, and what does that do to your sense of self and your sense of femininity? I remember talking to this one woman who is military police in Iraq, um, and she felt like the, that was the one thing that she was most proud of is that she could compete with men, she could beat them, she could be as fast as them, but she felt like she completely lost a track of who she was and so became determined to maintain a hot pink manicure while she was um, <laughs> in Iraq. And, uh, and I just think that this image of this gun-toting, you know, woman with like an M16 strapped across her back doing arrests in Iraq, but you know, with the perfect manicure, became, <laughs> yeah, really informative, I think, about what, what that said to me a lot about what is, what it is to be a female soldier in, in these wars. Yeah. But it, it, um, it needs an, an extraordinary performance at the heart yeah. of this play by Kate Fleetwood. Fleetwood. Yeah. First of all, why, why Kate Fleetwood? Why did you cast her? And what were the challenges that she faced in, doing, in bringing this performance to life? Yeah, I mean, uh, wow. Uh, okay, why cast Fleet Kate Fleetwood? Oh, well, you know, she needed a job. And, you know, I felt <laughs> sorry for her. No, uh, no, that's not true at all. She was, uh, she, she, she did an amazing, it's really hard to find, because what you've got to find with that part, and we we'd have talked about that, is, is that it's a person who's willing to kill. Do you know what I mean? That, that's what this character's done. So the, as well as this person, the play, you, 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 you chart a very vulnerable journey, but you've got to feel at the core this strength. So it's a very interesting combination. So, and, and I remember when I met Kate, she just exuded both that vulnerability and that strength, which was amazing to have. And then working, with, I know, I mean, you know, um, she did a lot of research on her own. So I know that she went and met uh, there's a charity called Changing Faces, which deals with uh, people who have got facial disfigurements. And, and she went and met people very specifically to understand what it would mean to, to have that and, uh, and to carry that. And, and so she did her own research. And then 
I mean, it's an incredible for those who have and haven't seen it. I mean, you know, basically, it's an incredibly taxing role. I mean, like, and I very remember... Very physical, isn't it? I mean, she's, the way she uses her body to convey the disability. And it's, it? Yeah, and also, I remember, I remember when we were first... When we did the first run, I also thought the audaciousness of a playwright to put at the beginning of a play a character centre stage who is half disfigured. Do you know what I mean? It's a very strong, striking image. And to also be able to, as an actor, to be able to carry that off. To, as you know, an actor, you, you're dependent on your face for expression, but half the face is immobile. So how do you carry that? And, and a, a lot of work. And, and also, uh, I, I mean, I don't know, I haven't talked to Kate about this, but I'm curious, you know, when you're having to play someone who's so disfigured, what does that do to your inner psyche do you know what I mean you know we all want to look good and especially when you're on stage and it's all about how you present yourself what does that do to um and but she was a, a ma absolutely amazing to work mm. with absolutely you know just you know busted her gut out you know um, and we have to talk about the thing that is most striking in a way about this production which is the virtual reality um and we're sitting on this large stage which those who've seen the play will know is transformed by the virtual reality projections is virtual reality, Lindsay, really being used to treat veterans who are suffering from the kind of pain that your character is suffering from? Yeah, yeah. Um, the guys who, I read an article when I was doing, I do a lot of research whenever I write a play, and I came across, you sort of never know where you'll find the inspiration, and I came across an article in GQ of all places, this men's magazine, probably have GQ here, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> uh, about this game called Snow World, which is uh, being tested in veteran centers. The guys who invented it are in the lobby right now, actually, setting up um, the lobby display where you can go after the play to go play the game for yourself. And it's um, the early version of it was called Snow World. The later version of it is called Cool. And it sets uh, the user in a sort of perfectly snowy landscape where you wander along the set path and are overwhelmed by sort of hypersaturated colors. You throw um, snowballs at woolly mammoths passing by in the first game. In this later game, you throw paintballs at otters. And it's a uh, sort of purposeful fully simple and not and it overwhelms your stimuli with um, this with all senses and it's loud music it's all Paul Simon music um, and and it works right miraculously. But it, and it works yeah. to help people who are in extreme pain in chronic in pain. pain yeah and and the problem with uh, burn survivors is that it's these unprecedented pain levels that we've never been able to actually fix these injuries these are injuries that in previous wars you would have died from um, but now you can survive, but what is it to actually live with uh, the, that amount of pain on a daily basis? So we're having to sort of, and pain management, it's a line in the play, hasn't improved since World War II, it's still morphine. So this is sort of the first um, alternative to that and it, and it does work. Right, and yeah. snow seems to be crucial to this. Is, is snow helpful in it taking you into a snowscape? Does that? I certainly, yeah, I certainly think so. You know, it's, right. you don't want to be reminded of heat Hot or sun. heat no, or flames exactly. or, you know, anything that's touching your skin in a negative way. And it's, and there's just something peaceful about snowy caverns and quiet, the quiet of that. And it must have been a gift to you in a way as a playwright when you discovered this because, you know, that was the inspiration presumably for yeah. the whole yeah. show. When you heard about it, did you immediately think, well, I can put that into a script, that will be an amazing dramatic device? 
yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I felt like I was, I just was immersing myself in research and in talking to veterans and people that worked at the VA and, uh, and reading and watching documentaries. And I felt like hovering on the subject matter. And then when I read that, I just suddenly knew what the play was. Um, just sort of, you just sort of know when you find something like that. And, and then I also had watched this documentary where um, veterans that are severely disfigured were paired with stand-up comedians uh, to develop a stand-up routine based on their lives and their experiences in, in war. And there was a burn survivor who's completely unrecognizable and and came out on stage and the audience got really uncomfortable and he sort of felt really nervous about coming out on stage and presenting himself in this way and he sort of looks at the crowd the crowd looks at him and then he just goes well you should have seen the other guy <laughs> and and it was that sort of self-deprecating humor about that set the audience at ease set him at ease and then you can sort of move on that I felt like I had to kept capture also and so I feel like the two things were really informative because Indu we should say that there is quite a lot of comedy in oh, this yeah. play. I mean, we're talking about very serious issues, obviously, but there is quite a lot of comedy in it, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And th but that's why I loved it. Do you know I mean, I love the script because it's, it's such a heavy subject, you know, it's so, and actually to, to, you know, there's a lightness of touch in Lindsay's writing that, that A, makes you laugh and cry at the same time, or, you know, and, and that, I mean, I love theatre that does that, you know, that, that's my sort of ideal kind of theatre, make them laugh, make them cry, do you know what I mean? Send them off on a, with a good evening. So, yeah, so uh, that, I mean, I really responded to the comedy. In right, and, and when it came to staging the virtual reality, <laughs> yeah. talk to me about that, because that sounds to me like a huge challenge on this huge stage, and you had some fantastically talented people working with you on I it, had a brilliant you? team of people working, and I have to say, you know, and I'm freelance, so I can say that uh, about here, is like, I think this is one of the only theatres probably, you know, in the world that can provide the resources to do that. And I say that because I met quite recently, whilst I was in rehearsal, rehearsal I met an artistic director of the a, a, a theatre, a big theatre in LA, and even he was saying to me, um, he was saying, you know, oh, what, we've got one of the biggest theatres in America, uh, but it's not the equivalent to the national, you know. It, and it, you know, as an artistic director of a big theatre in America, we're saying there's nowhere like the national. And I say that because there's a lot of people who work here full time, so you've got a lot of really, really good resources to deliver sort of very, very complex work that would would take. You know, it doesn't matter how how brilliant we are as a creative team, as a freelancers, if you don't have the resources to deliver that, we, we wouldn't be able to. I mean, like, mm. you know, you can't see this, but all the houses are hand-built and stuck on. Do you know, they had to, in order to paint this, they had to get onto fly hoists, because yeah. they, once they worked out how to do the curve bit, they couldn't work out how to paint it. <laughs> so, you know, and, and the, the VR is all, like, I've learned lots of technical language, so <laughs> for the technos in here, I'm very sorry, but that it's like they're all rendered, so they're all made. So I remember like going, there was this really fast moving bit. I said, I need an extra 10 seconds. And they said, that will take an extra 24 hours to make. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's that kind of uh, yeah. level of complexity and hard work that goes into, you know, I've really, I've really enjoyed that process because it's pushed all of us uh, creatively into delivering what, what the script needed. Because I think I'm right in saying that when this play was performed in New York, it was off-Broadway, it was in a very small theatre. Yeah. So has it been a transformation for you to see it move from a, a very small theatre off-Broadway yeah. into this enormous space at the National? 
Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's such a physically different production. This is the ninth production that I've seen of the play, and uh, it's I've never seen the VR done before. Wow. You so, know, and, and so in other productions, it's not it's not realized. In it's this not way. really realized. I mean, it's purposely built into the script so that it's for yeah. you're first experiencing it with language, and then it maybe grows with lighting or projections. And we've have incredible projections in this in this production, and I won't yeah I won't give it away, but. Um, I've seen little bits of projection here and there, like a flicker of a tree or something, you know, a little thing. And, you know, it's been much, much more abstracted and much less, I mean, this is obviously abstracted, but in a different sense. Yeah. Um, in, yeah. in this, is, this is actually fully realizing what the experience is to play VR in a way that I haven't seen before. And does that enhance the experience for you watching the play? Yeah. <laughs> certainly, yeah, is it, is certainly it what was in so, your head, yeah. as it were, when you yeah, were writing yeah. it? Yeah, no, what's, well, what's <coughs> amazing about it is that, like, I did do some rewrites for this production because we knew we had the Nationals resources at our disposal. So oh, not yeah. to say that not I didn't really go crazy, but we sort of needed a bit more time in... We wanted to well, I spend more time in the VR uh, scenes. I remember, yeah. you know... Uh, uh, sort of saying, just write what you want. Just yeah. write what you want. And we'd already worked on the design, and then she, and she'd written this the bit in the VR thing. I remember the designer going, this is new. And I said, yeah, but it's my fault. I said write to her what she wants, and so let's deliver it. <laughs> yeah. So you were constantly challenging the technical people. I didn't mean to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so we had had some discussions about, like, what can you, since we are actually going to fully realize it, what does that mean? So then I just got very specific about, like, now she crosses a lake, and I'm going to describe the lake, and then she climbs a mountain, and then describe the, and then the first time that we got into, when tech started coming into rehearsals, I was like, wait, they've just designed a video game based off of what I <laughs> well, had requested. Yeah, it was sort of bizarre. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, really yeah. bizarre. And, and, and it's amazing. I just wanted to talk about the VR thing. I just want because I had a because I was like a bit skeptical about this VR thing. How how can it really distract? And I had a go on it, and it is like because and they made me wet, and they made me hold a cup of boiling water before, and it was like I could barely hold it like one or two seconds. And then I was doing the game, and they put the cup of boiling water in my hand and it was like over double the length of time I could hold yeah. it whilst playing on this game. Because your senses were so distracted. Yeah, and yeah. I was so distracted. I mean, I thought I could live in that world. It was really great, shooting otters <laughs> and stuff. I was like, I was having a lot of fun. Yeah, they typically test it with not boiling water, but with an, <laughs> with an ice bucket. So you time how long you can keep your hand in the ice bucket and then they pull your, you know, your hand out and it's up to three times. You at least will have three times longer of being able to hold your hand in the ice when you're in the game. And But it was really funny because I wasn't here. I had gone away from rehearsal for two weeks and I got reports that they had been holding these cups of boiling water and I told the VR guys, and they were like, no, that's really dangerous. You can't <laughs> give them ice. Don't give them cups of boiling water. <laughs> I, I should say, the, the interesting thing for me was the contrast between the scale of the virtual reality and then the rather domestic nature of the dramatic scenes. Was that something that was difficult for you to stage, given that you've got these resources, given that you've got this space, and then you want us to focus in on what is, after all, a small cast in in relatively domestic locations? Yeah, it wasn't. It w what was difficult um, is that in order, again, without trying to give anything away, what I remember what was is it that because I think that's what I like about the Littl Littleton because you can focus and then you can go big. You know, you can do really epic and you know, uh, go. And so what was what was tricky as a director was in order for the the mechanics and the logistics of the, the, the set to work, 
all the positions had to be decided before we started rehearsals. So, you know, we ha you know, normally, you know, you're rehearsing, you're rehearsing with the actors, and oh, we'll move a table here, or we'll bring something else here, and we'll add, and there was no room for that. It was, you know, I had to make those decisions right at the beginning. But other than that, I mean, I'm, I, I love rhythms of plays that do that, that go, d t t you know, it's like mm. a piece of music. It's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's exciting, and it's exciting to be able to do it Often you're not in a space that you can go to scale. Do you know what I mean? Mm. You can go very intimate, but you can't go to. And you know, there's a one particular scene which I won't talk about with it that we, you know, that I think we, that is very intimate, but we've managed to really isolate in an epic landscape, and that mm. that to me was really exciting. Mm. And it, it, it's interesting to me too that you've been you've kept the focus quite tight in your storytelling. I mean, there must have been temptations to go into some of the big issues about, you know, w was the war in Afghanistan the right thing to do? Does America treat its veterans prop? You know, there are lots yeah. of political issues behind uh, the, the story that you're telling here. But, but were you deliberately avoiding those? Were you deliberately keen to make us focus on but Jessica and Jess and, and her story? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think when the theater that I respond to is always at the most sort of boiled down, personal, mundane, detail-oriented storytelling and not, and that the politics are in it, but it's for the audience to bring their politics to the personal and, and not for me as the playwright to be didactic about that in any way. Um, but I think that for me has been the biggest difference in seeing the play produced in America versus the play produced here. I feel like the hunger for me to be more blatantly didactic, I think, as an American being produced in the UK, where I think there, there's more of an expectation of me to sort of say, this is what it's like in America, this is what I think about Donald Trump, this is what I think about the war, whereas I think there is less of an expectation of that doing this play in the States, because there's a common politics that are in the ether, and, and, that, and we sort of are watching the same news, sort of, <laughs> um, <laughs> difficult to say now, but... Uh, yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? I, but it's, it's, it's in the air and it's in, it's in the zeitgeist in a way that when you are a foreigner being presented at the National Theatre, I think there's an expectation of, mm. you know, to nail it down and to not leave it into the characters and to the, into the audience. Right. Yeah. But, but in the end, what it is, is a human story, isn't it's, it? It's yeah, a story it's, about it's a, a, story, a woman. Yeah and her coming to terms with her dreadful situation, her terrible yeah, situation. Yeah, and then I think the politics are implied in what is it like, what does it mean to be in a communal space and have to look at the physical and metaphoric costs of fighting a foreign war once you come home? Mm. What, what is the domestic cost of asking people to, to go away and fight for us? Yeah. You, you talked about asking Lindsay to write some new parts of the play, and I'm quite interested in the working relationship because obviously if you're doing a classic play you wouldn't have the writer around to right. to help you you know the, the the writer might be dead so, so is it helpful having the writer around or can yeah, it sometimes be a hindrance i mean you know what's what's really useful is that i mean also for us we were doing a play set in florida we were doing and it was all english actors and it's very specific world it's a very specific context and we had we ha had the writer in the room who could explain and it's, you know, so on a very basic level, you, not only do you have, you have all the resources there. You, so all the questions and all the things and, you know, so Lindsay helped with, all, you know, 
ideas about costume as well as accent as well as the context of the text so mm -hmm. so it got us into the world quicker so i always think you know when you have the writer in the room you always have the the person do you like me you you don't have to guess. You go to the source. You go to you? the source. Yeah. You don't have to kind of go. Well, we think the writer was trying to do this, and you know, kind of like spend ages, sort of. But I wonder if you feel like I, I, I'll ask you in a second for your perspective on this. But I wonder if you sometimes feel like she's breathing down your neck and saying, "Don't change a word," you know, <laughs> and, you're, uh, and you're thinking, "Well, if only we could just get rid of that bit," you know. That, <laughs> I mean, Lindsay, no, Lindsay writes in a way that's very, very, very specific. You know, she knows what she wants, and you know. But I, I actually appreciate the specificity was never a, you know, you, you need to know that. Do you know what I mean? It's like, you never change. We never change a word. I mean, I never, yes. I, even if Lindsay wasn't there, uh, no word would be changed. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in the same way that you wouldn't change Shakespeare. I mean, I come from, you know, it's like you, you treat a classic as a new play, and you treat a new play as a classic. You, you have no license to change a word unless the writer has agreed it. Right. You know, full stop, where, whoever, where, did I mean Lindsay or anybody, you know, even a, you know, when I've worked with a 12-year-old, and I have worked with on a 12-year-old play, you don't change the word. Right. The writer, it is the writer's voice, you know. And Lindsay, do you ever get frustrated? I mean, you've obviously got lots of productions of this play have been staged. Do you ever think they're not doing it right and, and <laughs> want to, you know, shout up from the back and say, hold on? <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's funny seeing nine productions of a play because then the rhythms are just so set in your head and, and it's different to be on the ninth production of a play rather than the first production where you're sort of discovering it along with the actors and doing major rewrites in the room and maybe you'll change an ending or drop a scene or get rid of a character. But I did sort of feel like coming here, despite the workshop that we sort of did on it this summer, that the play was the play for better or for worse just because it had had this huge life and before the life had this huge development life, which is something like we were talking about backstage that you sort of don't do in this country play development, but we do hugely in the United States. So we had already gone to all these play development conferences and I'd already worked on this play for like, I, I'm just at a very sort of more done place with the play than I would be if it were a first production. Mm. So there are certain things and practicality things and just, pra you know, um, character things that I know come up again and again with each actor in which, you know, um, like some of the early design conversations I said, like, because the lead actor walks with a walker, you don't want to sort of, the set has to come to her. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. I've seen productions of it where she sort of stomps across and takes these transitions epically long time. So, you know, there's just certain um, logistical things that I feel like I yeah. just sort mm -hmm. of have um, at my disposal. Yeah. Just a final question from me. Uh, can you just deal with the title for us? Because it's, <laughs> from, a, it's from a quote, isn't it? Yeah. Tell us about that quote and why you, why you chose it. Um, it's an Einstein quote that's beauty is but skin deep, ugly lies the bone, beauty dies and fades away, but uh, ugly holds its own. And I had found it early on when I, and there's some discrepancy on whether or not Einstein said this silly little couplet, but um, it's mostly accredited to him. Uh, and uh, yeah, I had to read it. I was doing a lot of reading about ugliness and the meaning of the word ugly and what does it mean to feel like your body represents who you are? What does it mean to feel like your exterior doesn't represent your internal life? Um, and just thinking a lot about that and felt like that quote sort of took a position on it that I didn't know if I agreed with. How deep does ugliness go? What does it mean to feel ugly? How how does it go to your bone and to your core and to like the soul of who you are, or does it uh, 
or is it surface? And I felt like I sort of had it at the top of my document when I was writing the play and kept referring back to it as under this sort of un thematic umbrella. And uh, yeah. I'm afraid to say that we've run out of time. It's been a fascinating conversation. Would you please say thank you to Lindsay and to Indy? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And to Matthew. <laughs>